welcome 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 um this is actually at capacity and uh it's my new show uh basically this is going to be coming out of the sub stack it'll be on all the other things people listen to podcasts that uh i'll link the rss uh so basically i'm just going to be having interesting people on to talk about interesting things because i think people learn and a lot through conversation and uh i'm here for the discourse today i have emma elborn weinstock with me uh emma's done a bunch of political theory also worked at the jewish museum of montreal uh that's where i tried my first latka actually (laughs) uh it's really good uh shocking to me that someone can live an entire 24 years of life without latkes i know i know i was i was pretty shocked it was like there's that scene in the pink panther where the guy's never had a hamburger and then he tries it for the first time and he's like in a fantasy world like that was how i felt trying my first lock um so so yeah so i was done a lot of work on things like nationalism uh borders self-determination so we thought we'd chat a little bit about that for the uh, inaugural episode how's it going emma going okay it's pretty cold here in montreal i'm all wrapped up um and this is also my very first podcast appearance so you'll let me know if i do any faux pas podcast (laughs) faux pas you have it it runs in the family though so i feel like you you can emma's dad's done a lot of appearances so like radio you know. stuff i think yeah it's it's the some podcast radio yeah right you um so yeah so you recently finished doing a political theory master's and you did mm-hmm. some work on self-determination and uh what do you want to talk a little bit about that sure um my research on self-determination was pretty um, yeah, pretty focused on actually a specific um, justice department in Six Nations near Toronto. So I actually got the chance to go uh, visit and speak to some people there and look at their um, justice department that they're kind of trying to get off the ground. Um, and then sort of in conjunction with that, looked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and tried to figure out what are the responsibilities of, say, the provincial government towards those kinds of um, institutions that are sort of, I guess, when we think about self-determination, maybe that's not the kind of thing we think about first, but I was kind of trying to make the case that um, the federal and provincial governments do have a responsibility to support those kinds of institutions and that they're actually very crucial um, to these Indigenous communities in their uh, fights for self-determination. And that that kind of right is actually grounded in the Truth and Reconciliation uh, commission report right yeah yeah I feel like there's definitely a lot of um conversations about what self-determination even means mm-hmm. um especially worldwide uh I think you know there's been debates about whether that entitles you to have like your own state uh mm-hmm. what it does, does it mean that you have your everyone's entitled to an ethno state like mm-hmm uh then it becomes really complicated because it's like can we create a world like how do we really divide up Mm -hmm. the space that we have and so I've always really wondered about self-determination and I mean we've talked a little bit about nationalism as well as like Mm -hmm. uh and and sovereignty and I think another thing is that like in international law you kind of have a tension between you know everybody has the right to citizenship somewhere Mm -hmm. uh but also like everyone has the uh ability to or the right to control their their borders based on Mm -hmm. their right to Mm -hmm. Mm self-determination so I think that's definitely something that the left has been a little muddled on yeah I would agree and I think I guess I'm not entirely convinced that um yeah, I guess it seems to me that the conception of the sort of national state with this kind of full control over borders, it's a relatively modern invention uh, in the grand scheme of things. And I think overall, I'm not super convinced by it, <laughs> especially <laughs> where this kind of um, view of, of borders is concerned. Um, I think if you look at the history of border control, especially in, in settler states like the states and uh, Canada, that's usually been 
um, sort of bolstered and developed uh, in response to sort of racist policies and fears of like specific um, people from specific countries coming in. I mean, the history of Canada's borders have yeah, definitely been kind of shaped by um, fear of Jewish people coming in, of, of Chinese people, um, and kind of policies were actually sometimes very explicitly developed in direct response to that. Right, yeah, I, I one thing that's really crazy um, and that I've learned about recently here in Vancouver is that our restriction and criminalization of certain drugs has literally been to like stir mm -hmm. up paranoia about Chinese immigration. Mm -hmm. um, so things like the criminalization of, of um, opiates mm -hmm. is, is just like drawn to that as well, um, which is interesting because there's also kind of like a material basis for that. Uh, um, but what do you mean by a material basis for that? I think like when it comes to like criminalizing drugs, there's always been like a, a material incentive for certain industries to not want certain mm. drugs to be like out there, like the criminalization of hemp mm. uh, had to do with industries that did not want to compete with hemp. Um, so just stuff like that. Interesting. A little, little off topic, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think definitely um, with when you and that's another thing that's been really talked about is the whole borders thing and I think I've definitely fluctuated uh, mm -hmm. on on my views on on this border thing especially you know there's that Bernie comment that made everyone go into a frenzy about how open what borders. comment was that uh, so someone was like do you believe in open borders and Bernie mm -hmm. was like no it's a Koch brothers proposal and right, at okay. first like it annoyed me but. I've kind of like grown to understand what he means by that, um, which is like, it makes sense for capitalists to want a larger labor like pool to choose mm. from or to be like threatening people with uh, unskilled, other like unskilled labor. Um, right. So then that also factors into the, into the debate mm. as well. And you did some work on borders as well. And, a little bit in my undergrad, yeah. I wrote an, an undergraduate honors thesis on um, basically the concept of, yeah, of can there be sort of self-determination without borders, which was probably in retrospect a pretty ambitious uh, topic for ambitious. an undergraduate <laughs> honors thesis. And I'm not sure how well the actual work turned out, but I've been trying to think about that ever since then and would love to do some more. Um, some more thinking and writing about it. Um, I guess I guess part of what I did try to focus on though was was yeah how the we think of that as such a natural thing um, that of course self-determination can't truly really exist without a right to close borders um, but how it is relatively recent in the sort of grand scheme of things. Right. Um, I guess to me it's just hard to find like I, I understand the practical concerns, but sort of morally speaking, I have trouble being convinced by any um, any ethical justification that could possibly, yeah, justify sort of excluding people, especially from you know coming from precarious situations, and especially with the kind of global inequality that we see. Um, I think I'm, yeah, I, I have. There's this idea of we owe things to people <clears throat> in our national community that we don't owe to others. Um, that seems to ground a lot of the literature um, that, that was never entirely convincing to me. I'm not sure why we owe, you know, there's always going to be the population, a national, uh, you know, population is always going to grow and include new members. And it's not clear to me why we would owe um, more to you know just the 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 children of um, our you know community members than future members who want to be part of that community who are potentially coming in from elsewhere right yeah and like I remember a really funny argument that I heard where <laughs> uh, someone was saying like okay should we make it so that people don't have babies because like the babies can take your jobs too <laughs> um, but I do think you know this is kind of why my approach has been to look at the causes of uh, migrant crises, because essentially 
what's happening is, and I think there's a sort of symbiotic relationship between um, the sort of imperialists in the imperial core and between like the good, like the well-intentioned liberal pro-immigration people whose politics are kind of just like, you know, uh, let everyone in, no one's illegal, whatever, mm -hmm. um, in the sense that, you know, these people create these migrant crises. Like, I don't think people naturally want to leave where they're from right. into a different society. Right. Um, in fact, you know, in Syria, uh, about 500,000 people went back after one of the cities were retaken mm -hmm. from Al-Qaeda, right? Like, people want to uh, be where they're from, mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. of them. And, uh, you know, so we, we have these crises that are manufactured from the imperial core. Um, you know, these Islamist groups in Syria were funded by various imperialist powers. Um, so we created a migrant crisis, essentially, mm -hmm. where Syrians were kind of forced to leave their home. Uh, similarly, in Latin America, you have funding of these death squads. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have the way that, like, liberal international trade policies have made the wages of people uh, in say Mexico go down. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these things, because then now they have to compete with the US in terms of farming, manufacturing. Um, so all that says, we basically have created these situations that have made people want to immigrate en masse. Mm -hmm. But then you also have like the good hearted liberals being like, you know, well, like let them in, no humans illegal. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can't really disagree, but like, you know. No, of course, I agree. I don't think that the solution to, you know, these crises can be, well, <laughs> well, just everyone can leave if they're unhappy and, and come to, you know, North America. Um, of course not. But then that's also, I think, the, the sort of... Um, I don't know if the more right-wing person who who does not want to you know allow refugees into their borders also neglects to take into account the the sort of root causes of mm -hmm. um, those displacements so maybe as a whole the debate could uh, stand to consider that a little bit more but I don't think that can be a justification yeah yeah sort of either way when, when I frequented like libertarian circles there <laughs> some people would say uh you know we can't allow uh open borders unless we get rid of the welfare state so that those two things combined to me seems like a nightmare but anyway <laughs> so that that's what they're saying my my point is saying no we can't talk about this until we talk about imperialism and until mm -hmm. we talk about not just like imperialism through war but in terms of like these economic policies mm -hmm. that are also uh basically creating a, a global underclass and like yeah you know and then who benefits from like low-skilled people coming to like say Canada or the U.S. It's yeah, just the yeah. capitalists that push for these same economic policies as well so this is why I've like fluctuated on it because of course like I would never be like let's turn someone away <laughs> at the point <laughs> um, right but, but I think, you know, one thing we could do is make like a priority system where like, mm -hmm. if you've been, it's almost like a personal, maybe I'm thinking now in terms, too much in terms of like law, but it, it feels <laughs> like a, a personal injury commercial where like, <laughs> like if you've been impacted by, <laughs> by this country, you may be entitled to immigrate. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, you know, that that makes a lot more sense than, mm -hmm. um, you know, just being like, all right, just like let everything flow, let everything come in. And I, I do think like there are economic concerns as, as well. But in terms of like self-determination, I feel like- I mean, Do you mean I, economic concerns from like, from what perspective? Like if we have a welfare state, um, can the welfare state accommodate like large is, is that what you mean or do you mean more i think i think the welfare state can accommodate but i think it's it's the labor pool because basically right. yeah, like okay. if you if you are uh if you own capital mm -hmm. uh you basically the, the more people that are in the labor pool the more disposable your workers are right because like then you can replace them more easily 
-hmm. say oh well you don't want to do this for me oh you want a higher wage well guess what I got <laughs> someone desperate over here that I can replace you with mm -hmm. so too bad um and like this also creates you know it, it's not good for the exploited person that they're replacing them with either mm -hmm. um, but again that that strikes me not as a problem with the idea of open borders or mm -hmm. the idea of um you know immigration but more just with our economic structures and maybe right. you know addressing those would also address the root causes of mass sort of um you know the need for immigration and refugees and whatnot. Yeah, um, so I don't think we fundamentally disagree, but I guess I am a little wary of uh, that argument that would then seek to um, uh, that would that would push back against the idea of more open borders. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think you know it's it's been a very interesting, and I I found also that there's so much heat during mm -hmm. this debate like it's like oh you don't like open borders you're a racist <laughs> and then it's like oh you do like open borders like you like you're like the Koch brothers like <laughs> whereas like I think you know we can read good intentions onto mm -hmm. both Definitely. sides of the of the debate um particularly you know acknowledging that both sides of the mm -hmm, debate mm -hmm. don't have are like they're not homogenous mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know nowadays in politics if you say this group's not homogenous everyone gets upset with you. <laughs> uh, but yeah have you had any <laughs> recent experiences with that that you'd like to talk about <laughs> yeah it's my therapy session no I do think it's 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 true though it's like we kind of want to put everyone into the same kind of of category and I think especially the category of immigrant uh has that people have tried to make this like a uniform political category you know like immigrants welcome uh which is fine but you know they don't all have the same uh experiences i mean we both have uh immigrant family and, and they don't have the same experiences uh and like doesn't mean i hate to use the term valid because that's just like the worst but, um but i i do think that you know it makes a difference to say like which immigrants from which conditions are they coming for? Are they coming, uh, like are they already well off and coming from like the Nordic countries just mm -hmm. to like make more money or like are they coming here because like the US army went and like destroyed mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. whole country. Of course, right? of course, yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like that's really relevant and I think that that's like that distinction has been collapsed. And then you end up with having this thing like listen to immigrants and then it might be someone like named like like Eichmann the fifth coming from like <laughs> Argentina or, or uh, whatever being like my people want you to invade Venezuela and it's kind of like mm. <laughs> um so just stuff like that you know it's 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 always like this kind of homogenizing and uh and yeah and I, I've gotten into some trouble on Twitter for for saying you know we shouldn't homogenize people's opinions uh, I don't think that's controversial personally. I think it it treats a group with more respect to acknowledge that uh, their opinions are are not uniform. Uh, no, of course. I think on the other, uh, just on just to, you know, on the other hand, I I see what like you also see people who will take, you know, use one lone dissenting voice, say, of a certain, you know. Mm -hmm from within some marginalized group. Um, and then someone saying, well, see, there's disagreement, therefore, you know, it's okay for me to say this thing or that, that yeah. many people from within the group have agreed is actually harmful. Just to, I don't I don't wanna use the term devil's advocate, but just to <laughs> present you with, you know. Valid uh, devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> we should get a list going of banned yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all very I loaded. Well, I think in Canada, we especially kind of saw that um, with the pipeline, you know, you had mm -hmm. people being like, Definitely. well, this Indigenous group is pro-pipeline. So exactly. So it's more complicated than that. So who can really say? So we should just let the construction go ahead anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I think, you know, again, though, like that shows like even the way that we talk about, say, Indigenous people in Canada, it's like very uniform in a sense sure. like we just refer to everyone as like indigenous people most people don't even know like the name of the land they're at mm -hmm. on or like which they don't yeah. see them as distinct groups you know yeah. and uh, they don't see even like 
say class distinctions among uh, different groups as well. Like maybe some people have a material interest in the pipeline happening, but other people mm -hmm. don't. But it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like, again, it's like a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. between like this vulgar identity left that's like, that collapses the distinctions. And then also mm -hmm. between like the capitalists who are like, yeah, yeah, like this is, they believe this, like they're fine. Mm -hmm. We're gonna, we're gonna put the pipeline in. Yeah, know? well, I mean, and in that case, it's often even more insidious um, because often the sort of de facto, say, band leaders are, um the ones with sort of decision making power with respect to the government because of documents like the indian act like you can trace right. all the way back to that so you know to also be able to pay attention to like who's being listened to from within that community and why um and are there actual like structural uh reasons for that yeah no and you know whenever people are like listen to blank people i'm always like which <laughs> people like literally which ones uh yeah, maybe it'd be better to say like look at the power structures that are mm -hmm. um and take those into account when you're when look you're... at the interests at play you yeah. know i think we've also seen this just in any sort of group that um ha has a large umbrella you know mm -hmm. so like immigrant is one of them indigenous lgbt lgbt is a huge <laughs> one and the umbrella just keeps getting bigger <laughs> uh now it's gonna be like uh now i saw stuff like oh okay if you're a guy dating a bi a bi girl then like you're queer too yeah. um so, <laughs> so it's gonna just get you if know, you're from montreal and you wear black nail polish and you are a dude you yeah. are queering masculinity yeah, you're queering masculinity if you're harry styles in a dress mm -hmm. that's it you're queer now yeah um and so again like that's another one where it's huge like uh and there's been really good writing on this on like homo nationalism and stuff mm -hmm. where people speak of this like sole lgbt identity when within this umbrella there's so many different experiences uh different positions within society mm -hmm. i feel it like this is really sorry mm -hmm. no, this is really the thorn in your side, eh? The, the, <laughs> <laughs> the limits to um, identity politics and where how people have misused them. I feel like yeah. that's your... <laughs> it's my, my, uh, my jihad. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, no, I, I, I just think... I, I think what really gets to me in, in politics is I don't like things that um, assume that like people are dumb and that uh, are condescending. And I think that overgeneralizing uh, about people's identities are, I, first of all, I don't think it's sincere. And I think that, you know, my concern is that, you know, by using this, you're just saying like, okay, well, this person's just gonna take my word for it. And like, if they don't take my word for it, then I'm gonna call them this. And I just, I find that a really bad way to go about things. Mm -hmm. Do you do you see any um, maybe good that's come out of this trend of like standpoint and epistemology? Um, do you like see any benefits to it? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, and I, I, I've written about this a little bit because I, I, I don't think standpoint began. I, my argument is that standpoint began with uh, Descartes and not with, uh, <laughs> not not in the not in this last century yeah, or so. Yeah. Um, and and what I talk about is how in his discourse on method, um, he talks about kind of appealing to experiential knowledge, mm -hmm. um, and you know, okay, well when you're there's certain kinds of knowledge that you can only have through experience and i think that that's largely true um it's it's just, just a very trivially true fact that like yeah you'll never know what it's like to be like a certain group of people if you're not part of that group and so like the whole listen to x actually does have a bit of truth to it in the sense that i do think it's epistemically useful. It's very useful to know perspectives from different groups of people. 
Um, and so I, I actually do think the standpoint is quite valuable in a lot of ways. And as are some forms of like appeals to it, like people organizing around identity is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, can actually be quite good. And I mean, I, we can talk about when we talk about nationalism a little bit, um, but like third world nationalism has kind of organized a, a mixture between uh, colonized identity and class. And I think that, you know, there are good ways to, to do that. Um, so I think, yeah, its uses are definitely from experiential knowledge and probably convenient organizing of convenient organizing tool as well where I don't think it's useful is to use experiential knowledge in place of other forms of knowledge mm-hmm. um I think it's better to just have like a pluralist understanding of knowledge like there's different kinds yeah. of knowledge um and also that experiential knowledge is not a trump card it's not um and i've written about this as well it's not a trump card it's not uh, a way to to bludgeon someone else mm-hmm. it's merely a, a new information that we can all benefit from knowing mm-hmm. but uh it's not and the prime example i always use is that girl that cried in front of the u.s congress um being like i'm a kuwaiti go please bomb my country um <laughs> uh you know and it turned out to be a lie my point though is even if it wasn't a lie like we should not let ourselves be swayed by these kinds of emotional appeals um again we can say okay that's knowledge that we've gained it's good knowledge you know like good to know (laughs) um and and when i what i talked about as well is i think it was important in the development of stuff like feminist philosophy um or just metaphysics in general because we can't like like before women were doing philosophy the way that men conceived of women as metaphysically was actually not accurate it's not just that it was like silly it was just i mean it was silly but it was also actually inaccurate right like um this whole like well women's bodies are colder and that's why they can't produce uh sperm like yes you know like you could just just stuff like that or like that's why they can't reason or stuff like that um I just think you know so again like actually I think the more knowledge and the more perspectives you have is actually a really good thing for finding truth and we should get in as many perspectives as possible mm-hmm. um but yeah, my my issue has been weaponization and hypergeneralization because I don't think that sharing an identity with someone necessarily gives you the same exact experience. Yeah, of course. And would you say that seems to me almost like a feature of like social media coming into play where like you kind of need to like win debates quickly and like have a super <laughs> yeah. um, concise like takedown of your interlocutor Um. yeah yeah definitely and I think you know one of the issues there as well is and it shows kind of the flaw and I I brought this up as well is that you know even if you are part of the right group if you don't say the right line then you're not your your membership in that group is going to (laughs) be challenged right so like if I um I don't even I'm not going to bring up one of my own groups because they're not really that interesting but um if you like if you're part of any sort of group of people like Joe Biden's like you ain't black if you did not voting for Joe Biden thing right like why is that racist it's not just racist because like he's a white guy telling a black person Mm -hmm. they're not black it's racist because it's denying that there can be a diversity of thought uh within an entire racial group right like that's Mm -hmm. that's where it's at and similarly you know another example i brought up was trump saying you know if you're a jewish american and you uh don't vote for republican then you're not like a real jewish person and like stuff like that you know it's not just about being the right identity it's about being the right identity and towing the right line for the right people Mm -hmm. and uh that so even if you bring it up as like a conversation, my, my point is like, you can, they can always come for you in some way. You know? <laughs> right. right. Okay. 
Thanks for taking that detour into <laughs> Mila's, uh, yeah, all of Mila's thoughts on identity politics. <laughs> now that's out of the clear. Um, no, but I think it, it is really interesting um, when talking about, like what we were saying, when talking about borders as well. And, um, and we were talking a little bit about nationalism before. And I think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been through phases where like, I was just been so opposed to nationalism and just been like we cannot do this like if you are proud of where you're born you are whack like I mm -hmm. to me it just didn't make any sense mm -hmm. and you know studying I mean this summer you and I we both uh, were in a black political thought group read mm -hmm. some Kwame Ture and uh, I started to see like more value and not uh, even if it's like artificial so to yeah speak. I mean I think there's something to say for um having something around which people can rally and be brought together and how that can maybe inspire people to action and to revolution even um and I mean, I don't know. So I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of Canada specifically, because I do think it is different in sort of settler colonial states like yes. Canada. Um, but I've often wondered, so if you compare, so I, I'm also, I'm often struck by leftist American discourse um, and how it still seems grounded in a certain patriotism that always kind of takes me off guard as a leftist Canadian. Um, because I think, yeah, in, in a lot of Canadian discourse, we've sort of come to, in certain circles anyway, sort of come to um, a certain agreement of just like the kind of fakeness of Canada. <laughs> um, or like the illegitimate, um, yeah. It's illegitimacy. Sorry, why can't I say that word right now? Illegitimacy. It's illegitimacy. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you can edit that part right in, in post. Um, and in a way that that sort of yeah is quite distinct from like American discourse. I think. Um, and I think my my default position is to be quite critical of Americans who continue to be quite patriotic and who continue to like believe in and in some ways uphold this imperial you know settler colony um but i also have like recently started to wonder if that explains in part um some of like the kind of american drive to like want better for mm -hmm. their country and how there's this certain um like acceptance of things maybe in canada like there's a bit less of a fire, I think a bit less of a willingness maybe to like take to the streets, a bit less of a willingness to be extremely critical of our politicians and that kind of thing. Um, and I'm not saying that I think the solution should be like that we all get behind Canada and, you know, become more patriotic and like model ourselves. Um, yeah, over the states. Uh, in fact, I, I really don't believe that. Um, but I guess I wonder yeah, I wonder if there's some kind of causal link there. Um, and yeah. I wonder what we can rally around. Um, and I guess I guess the answer to that would probably be something more like a respect for the land and the place itself, like something like, you know, Canada, but not Canada, just like right. Like we're like we're we in this on. beautiful place, right? Like yeah, and then and, and our communities, and, like our actually kind of more direct communities and, and care for each other and whatnot. Um yeah. and maybe and and you know i believe in well land back <laughs> to indigenous <laughs> communities as well and in whatever form that may take and there's a lot of different um different views about ways, that yeah. but um anyways yeah. those are some thoughts <laughs> yeah i i think you know definitely um i think also there's a sort of political purpose in like not I don't know I felt like I, I've just been like um actually a lot with nationalism like oh well why should we philosophically feel proud of it in the same way that you might with like religion like oh why do you go to church if like you know god's not real like something like that um and I think you know similarly like a lot of people go to church for community um, and that helps organize a community around doing something that is spiritually beneficial. 
I think right now um, we don't really have that. Uh, people are more lonely than ever. They're more fragmented. Um, they don't have something to unite over. And I think like it could be beneficial to have like some sort of, I, I don't even want to say like nationalist in, in like, cause I know it has a bad connotation, but a sort of national unity where we all kind of want to make life better for everybody. Um, and yeah, we respect, we respect the land. Um, but another thing, another barrier, I think with both Canada and the US is that our countries are big um there is really not a lot of cultural adhesion yeah i mean what what unites canada literally just a history of colonialism uh yeah i i think definitely um something else that i have uh i mean what what unites canada is yes there is this shared history we're also united under like one charter um Right, and and I mean, I was I, being like a little bit facetious, but yeah, 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 only a little um, bit. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that that matters to like groups of people that we all that like leftists purport to speak for. So like bringing it back to like immigrants, like immigrants in general are are very patriotic, um, not because like you know whatever like you don't need to moralize your parents for being proud of being here, but. Um, I think, you know, a lot of immigrants are patriotic and like, uh, they're grateful to be here. And uh, they have like a chart. My grandfather has like a huge charter of rights and freedoms in his yeah. house. Um, and again, like they're not proud of Canada's history. I don't really think they know too much about it. Um, and I think that there's a generational gap between what uh, older but among immigrant families where like the older ones think that um, being proud of your country is like being grateful to be here and like uh, enjoying certain rights and freedoms. Uh, whereas our generation tends to associate being proud of your country with like being proud of how we got here, being proud of its right. history. I mean, there is still that that tension though in that so many indigenous communities are not enjoying many of the yeah, same yeah, rights exactly. that immigrants can enjoy by coming here. And it's yeah. it's literally because of that land um, yeah. that we are able to enjoy that, yeah. these no, rights and, and the sort of wealth as well that, that we're able to accumulate. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely take your point. It, it makes it difficult, I think, because yeah again we don't want to be like oh if your country is like wrecking you like you shouldn't come here right like of course um we shouldn't turn away people running from terrorism um but then at the same time like you can i, I don't know there's just something like off-putting to me um about like turning to immigrant communities that mm -hmm like are very grateful to be alive and here and then just being like well by the way like <laughs> no and I mean yeah. it's not it's not about like you know going to individuals and like forcibly changing their mind or anything yeah like it's 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 about structural conditions again mm -hmm. and yeah I think it's about being honest with ourselves too you know I I think what's annoyed me about nationalism in the past is not so much that uh it has served as a unification point, but be, what's annoyed me about it is the ways, the extent of which it's encouraged us to lie to ourselves mm -hmm. um, about what our history is, because we end up attaching our identity to this idea of the nation, right? And then any sort of thing that makes that nation not look good is a mm -hmm. personal attack on ourselves. Um, and like that seems to be an issue that's why there's so many jokes you know about in the u.s like if you don't respect the troops like there's so <laughs> many comedians we're both thinking of that curb episode <laughs> larry doesn't say thank you for your service and uh yeah. it's you know there's so much comedy around that and i i think it, it really does come from the sensitivity of it and the sensitivity comes from you know identifying ourselves so deeply uh with that national not just with like a project that's forward-looking 
something that's backward looking, you know, something that's like, okay, well, if I make our history look bad, that must mean that like, like it, it, some people might interpret that as like a nihilistic sort of like thing where like, okay, well, that's it. We can never be good. Like our, we're on tainted land or whatever. Um, and so it, it, I, I think, you know, one of the solutions might just involve something that's forward looking, something that's not necessarily like anti-state, uh, but something that involves, you know, acknowledging past wrongs, finding out how to make that right, and also finding out how to make everyone that lives here more secure and give them some sort of fulfillment in some respect. Yeah, again, I'm just, I don't have a clear idea of how that's possible with like Canada continuing it's, to it's exist as, as a state. Um, but I know that's like a relatively marginal view, <laughs> potentially. Um, well, something I've also really thought about is that revolution and like stuff like that is not very palatable to people. Like a lot mm -hmm. of people just want to live in peace. <laughs> Um, and so it's going to be hard to like get people on board uh, if you're just going to be like yeah like I don't want Canada to exist anymore um, uh, like rhetorically on the rhetorical level um, I don't know I almost think of something like socialism with Canadian characteristics or something <laughs> um, but again it's like what is a Canadian characteristic it's, it's really like it's really hard to say because I, I think, you know, even identity in Canada is really formed more by like your provincial identity rather than your It's true. I do wonder, identity. I do wonder how much my views on, you know, Canadian patriotism are shaped by living From in you Quebec. you being in Quebec. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, are we really going to get Quebec on board with national unity? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> right and also like maybe people are far more patriotic um elsewhere in Canada I, I mean I know I know that I know that they are I know that not everyone um you know generally on the left um you know doesn't believe in Canada I know that's not the case um anyways yeah it's like it's like do you believe in God do you believe in God <laughs> um yeah no I, I definitely do think like it's it's very I mean, I'm sure it's like this everywhere, right? Where like, you know, countries are diverse. They're not the same in every uh, region of the country, but you know, Canada in particular, because it's so large, like there's gonna be so many different, I feel like there's so many different cultures within Canada. You know, I remember meeting course, people yeah. from like Newfoundland and, and uh, yeah, of course. Nova Scotia and being like, this sounds like a totally different country from, mm -hmm but I, like I've experienced in BC, like they have their, their own culture. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, I, I, I think, you know, nationalism in a sense might have the same problem that like identity politics has where it's like this hyper generalization of something that can't be generalized in a sense, but you could rally people just around basic economic needs and go from there mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. it's the best I got <laughs> yeah yeah I'm relatively convinced by that um and also by I don't know some some kind of rethinking of community ideally yeah I just think it's so like I definitely think people are feeling disconnected in some respect obviously the pandemic's made it like 10 times worse mm -hmm. um but yeah there's just such a sad loss of community um and I don't know like a part it's funny because I have been an atheist since I was like 12 but a part of me is always like hmm, I wonder if it's just good for us to have religion um yeah and I mean I, I also think <laughs> Yeah, there's some religions, like I would argue Judaism, that require less that you actually um, believe in something concrete. There's less of a sort of requirement of faith 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's Very actually much more, it's actually much more about the sort of traditions and community and, um, you know, there's a lot of internal debates and disagreements about, about the text and about, you know, interpretation and, and that's encouraged. And um, there isn't so much of that, you know, distinction, I think, between, you know, it, it wouldn't make, it wouldn't make a ton of sense for someone to say, oh, I, I'm no longer practicing because I like lost my faith or something like that. Like, right, that's, I right, think far less common. Yeah. Um, anyways, that's a bit of yeah, a side well, note, but it's definitely no, something that I think is appealing. That's very appealing, I think. And, you know, I think if there was just like that, like if there's just a community and that was about talking about how we should live, right? Like not about like heaven or mm-hmm. like that to me, that's the, that's very off-putting to me, but um and I know like there's there's no heaven and hell in Judaism too so <laughs> another point in its favor yeah you got Larry King David of, uh, King of converting and no heaven and hell like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um but but I, I yeah I think you know that would definitely because I I found like even like Catholic aesthetics right like they're cool right like it, it's a it's it's nice sure. like, you want to you don't want to like like for me I'm just kind of like okay well if I'm eating this bread I don't feel like this is literally Jesus's body so like I can't really do this you know um whereas yeah like from what I've seen with Judaism it's like you don't really have to think that you're eating Jesus's body I don't know no in fact it's I'm discouraged <laughs> too um <laughs> try to eat Jesus's body in any form <laughs> yeah but I think you know that that could be like th- there could be a really good model for community that uh religions provided us where like you know there's I I get the appeal because there's a sort of right and wrong uh there's a guidance to to interpreting what's the good um which we think philosophy gives us but I don't know and uh, I think similarly like with the decline of religion people find nationalism more appealing as well because they want something Mm -hmm. like that Um, I've argued that there are certain other things you could go for like sports um, (laughs) or like music you know like these things you can form community in as well I know like not now because do you think getting people into music and sports is going to um, provide an alternative to nationalism? Religion. Is that what you're saying? Both Not religion nationalism, and nationalism? I, I, I do think that people are drawn to nationalism because they lack um, a sort of community. Um, and people are drawn to re- religion um, for similar... They can be drawn to religion for similar reasons. Um, and I think just the fact that now there's a big nationalist turn in the world, I think has to do with the decline of religion in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there is religious nationalism as well. And course, I do yeah. think that's a way that people do find spiritual fulfillment. Um, so for instance, there are very hard line uh, supporters of Israel that like really don't want any sort of criticism leveled at it. Uh, I'm not saying this is all Zionist, it's just a certain brand and uh i think you know because you identify so deeply with it it's like if your state is an embodiment of your spiritual beliefs and like people are attacking that that's like so personal you know mm-hmm. uh it, it reminds me of hobbs can't even go on there's a there's a, a hobbs quote uh where he talks about how uh, it's impossible to like argue about politics with people and like because people view it as you calling them stupid if you don't agree with mm-hmm. them um, and I think you know similarly uh, when, it, when it comes to nationalism you know people feel so um, deeply connected deeply personal with it um, and so my point is like I don't know if I can replace it but having something that's consistent that has camaraderie in it and that involves also like bettering yourself as well or is something that I think people need and so like religion offers that because it's like 
you know, it offers you an explanation of the world, you're in it with other people, and you're also spiritually fulfilling yourself. Um, so I think like, you know, with sports communities, you can kind of get this as well, um, where, you know, you, you're working with a team, you have camaraderie with your team, you're, you're getting fitter, feeling good. And yeah, I mean, I kind of was laughing at you at first, but but to be honest, I feel like singing in choirs has maybe been the closest thing to true community that I've known in yeah. my life. So maybe like, there is something to what you're saying. And I'm not a nationalist or patriotic, so <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But so, I, far, I, <laughs> so far, your theory tracks, sample size of one. There you go. Well, I, I do think it it's really, um, like I guess the one thing that it does lack is that it doesn't uh, do the job of necessarily explaining morals in the world. But I think it can kind of like show, not tell with morals. Like when you're working with like a team, you learn certain morals, especially when you're young and you're doing team sports. I remember I was told not to uh, play rough with the other team, even though I'm playing with them, you know? Uh, but it's that like, especially with young girls, like people drop out of sports really young, like especially in uh, like teenage girls usually stop playing when they're like 14. Um, so and do you think, so do you think that um, nationalist movements provide people with a kind of moral like guiding framework? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I think they provide like, because they provide like an ideal. So for instance, American nationalism provides this ideal of like freedom like so it says okay freedom is the greatest thing right and then it's like well we're built on that we're built on upholding this kind of freedom and uh, you're working together with your fellow man but you're also an individual that's personally thriving uh, from that freedom that's been granted and that you that you're that thing that you stand for you know um and so I think that it does offer people that and I think that the only way to deal with the negative effects of that is to offer people the same sort of thing but I'd like not necessarily being like yeah like you should go bomb another country because that's upholding freedom obviously that's very bad um, but I think that that would have less sway over people if they had something else that would personally fulfill them. So then it's like, do we build a, a nice nationalism or do we <laughs> uh, <laughs> do we encourage community in another way? I don't know, but it's definitely something that uh, I've been having a big old think about. Yeah, yeah, me too. And what is more conducive to actually getting people to kind of fight for their rights and yeah. be advocates for themselves and for their communities. Yeah, exactly. Just be like, how do we look for a better tomorrow? <laughs> All right. Well, Is that a good note to end on? Yeah, we are coming up on time. Thank you very much, Emma. And, thank you. Uh, thank you to the listeners and we'll see you next time. Bye.